Dr. Yaklindi, uh, thank you for joining me on the show. Um, for those people that might not be aware of what you do, apart from being world-class dentist, but dentist is not just the word, right? You do a whole lot more. Like, how do you, would you describe your practice and what you do? Yeah, it, well, dentistry in the sense of the word is obviously to treat anything that is intraoral, being inside the mouth, teeth, gums, tongue, soft tissue, whatever else it is. But we kind of see it as perioral rejuvenation, mm -hmm. which is also surrounding the mouth, like, you know, lips and cheeks and facial form and also positioning of the teeth. There's a whole host of factors when it comes to um, an aesthetic appeal. And, and that's the nature of my practice, uh, CS. And, you know, when you walk in, you get the feel that it's somewhere that's a little bit more distinctive than your general dentistry. Yeah. Um, it's it's very aesthetic. We you know pride ourselves in um, giving that patient the experience that is somewhat uh, sets ourselves apart from from general dentistry. Because I mean, you mentioned the word dentist or dentistry, and I don't never know if I'm offending you know because you're a professional, and, and yeah. I'm like you know I hate the dentist. Go to Benf hate Bedford the Dental Care was where they can find you, but. Mm. Uh, just to sort of paint the picture, we're not here to talk about teeth. Yeah, we are, but, but... We have them, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> but you'll be uh, attempting to climb Mount Everest, and we will get there. But how we met is I'm paranoid when it comes to dentists, drills. I've just had bad experiences throughout my life. And actually, Sam Herbst, uh, who runs another podcast out of here, The Great Equalizer, recommended you. And she's like, you've got to go. Dr. Yak is fantastic. It was still when you were at your old yes, premises. Yes, I remember some of She's had a kid. I'm like uh, terrified of, of, I think it's a mental, it's definitely a mental thing because I like the pain, you know, it's fleeting, it's the injections, that sort of thing. And I, I like floss almost too much in a, in a way just because of the paranoia that mm. I have. But <laughs> When I met you, I was like, okay, this is great because you immediately put me at ease. We were calm. It was great. There was no pain. And we've continued our relationship. And when I had my little emergency over the weekend, thank you for sorting me out on Monday. Hmm. And that's when you dropped the bomb on me and went, oh, do you know that I'm doing Everest? I was like, you, no, you, I mean, I haven't had enough coffee on a Monday morning. <laughs> but now it's the second time within a year that you're going back to Mount Everest. Yeah. What did you do? On your first, was it just to sort of suss it out, see, or was that an attempt? Or, or tell us a bit more. Yeah, I went to leave some crumbs up there. So if I get lost, <laughs> then I know I get back home. No, I mean, there was always this intention of me going to the Himalayas. Uh, I mean, it's in my name, yeah. Yak. Uh, for those of you that don't know, it's, uh, there's, there's it's a an link. animal yeah, <laughs> that only exists in those parts. In fact, I've got a profile picture on my Facebook as a joke of uh, a yak from the Himalayas, the animal. And then I drew a picture of myself uh, as an animated cartoon sitting on the yak. <laughs> that was my profile picture for many years, and it was a yak within a yak. And I mean, I was never was interested in climbing Everest at that particular stage, but I always had an interest in in Nepal, for that matter, and especially Kathmandu. There's a there's a Hardy Boy series, and uh, one of the first books of theirs was um, The Adventures to the Himalayas and obviously a climb and for some some reason I remember Tintin being part of that and I'm a huge fan by the way yeah. both Hardy Boys and Tintin yeah. not just because I'm ginger yeah um. <laughs> so yeah, you could actually pass as a Tintin if ever they make a movie well I think they have and they could no, cost I, have, no, I, I had to turn him down oh really yeah, yeah no I was yeah. too busy with the podcast it was the accent yeah. maybe yeah <laughs> 
So they had a friend that actually lived in uh, Kathmandu. And the way they described it at the beginning of the book, I was like, wow, this place is amazing. Like in the mountains and the jungle and, uh, you know, the animals and, and the height and the altitude and the risk and the danger. And um, for those of you who know me, you know, I'm not averse to to uh, danger and <laughs> and uh, adventurous situations, let's call it that. So that's where it sparked my interest. And then last year, um, I actually, well, let's start before that. I did the Otter Trail with my cousins the year before that. It was 2020. And we waited a long time to get this done. Sorry, 2022. That's 20, a fantastic race, by the way. Yeah, the Otter is amazing. Yeah. Not the race, the high quest. Okay. People who do the race. <laughs> yeah, that's superhuman. Um, and it was really amazing. And there's one particular stage that I had to cross the Bloberg River and... It was more so to do with me not being <laughs> very well prepared for it. Um, crossed the river, but actually went up the wrong path. And it was a very dangerous route, but I managed to get up there. And I actually thought to myself, how do they allow people to to, to do this? And then I realized, well, that's why you sign all that indemnity that you, you pass on there. It's not anybody else's fault but yourself. So I did that, and I really, really enjoyed the risk of that. And... Um, I wanted to do something more intense, and a lot of people said, why don't you try Kili? Um, and I, I did some research and stuff on Kili, and it didn't really suit my fancy. And I applied for Everest, and um, So you have to apply. Yeah, you got to apply. So, um, I mean, forgive me. I know very mm. little about this process. I know Kilimanjaro, it's a lot more straightforward. Yeah. Um, but So there's an application you fill out, to climb Mount Everest? Yeah. So you, I'm, I'm going through um, a company called uh, Pioneer Expedition. Um, they're a Nepalese-based expedition company. And you can you can choose to go through specific companies. However, they have, each company's got their prerequisite. It's not mandated by law. Mm-hmm. However, they've got to make the application to the Nepalese government on your behalf. I see. So... There's a few climbs that uh, you know are sort of a prerequisite. A lot of them um, suggest Aconcagua in Argentina, and a few other 8,000 meters, or you know them just sort of verifying your capability. So last year I went over to Everest. I managed to get this. Uh, it was out of climbing season, but we got there. That's where I actually met this company, Pioneer Expedition, and um, the owner of the company, Tenji. Very hands-on guy. He's there he's climbing with you he's a, he's a sherpa he owns a company but he's also a sherpa and then i decided yeah these guys are going to be i met them at base camp and i realized you know what they they're taking me on a tour here and they've just basically been going up yeah. and down the mountain in their rotation but they have the time enough in their day to still be hospitable okay. and accommodating and i really like these energy so i decided to join them but i also um did Lobache peak which is uh, just there on Everest as well, about 6,800 uh, meters, somewhere about there, if I stand to be corrected. And, um, yeah, about the same uh, as Camp 2. And um, that's, how I, that's how I got involved last year. And then I thought to myself, wow, I mean, I'm in the icefall. I'm in the Kumbu icefall, and I'm actually doing all of this. And it's, it's strenuous, and it, it's, a, it's quite a lot, but it's manageable. It's it's something that if you apply yourself and if you train toward, you can you can get it done. Yeah. It's not something that has a physical limitation that's out of the bounds of what can be prepared for. If you can prepare for something, you can get it done. 
your your training and preparation obviously that that's a lot i mean from the gear to having the right company i mean the sherpas deserve so much credit for the amazing work that they yeah. do uh, the stuff they've seen um to make these ascents possible but give us an idea you told me i know you're a busy man you're running a full-time dentistry practice um you up at four training what, what's the training been like has it been cardio has it been functional training strength training give us an idea of what it takes to go into this we obviously have a lot of athletes on this podcast but this is a different ball game altogether yeah so i mean there's a whole host of factors here that you've got to train for from the technical aspect of how to use um you know your rope ascenders and how to sort of balance out what your weight capacity is uh, and keeping your center of gravity to cardio because you are going to be exerting a lot of pressure you're going i'm sorry uh um uh, uh, oxygen mm. and then it comes to your lung function and specifically the lung function like an emphasized lung function um, so last year I just based, I mean I wasn't training to summit I was just training to go as high up as I could so I had um, a oxygen regulator mask that I would use and I was doing basically my own research and my own training I've since or well, subsequently come in contact with a company called um, Aerofit yeah um you can see them, that's the logo if you're going to research I mean, These are the companies that make this whole thing possible, yeah, right? Yeah, so they're a part of my um, sort of sponsorship and also um, the uh, who I'm climbing on behalf of, and I will get to that. But Aerofit is basically a device that you, it's got a mouthpiece and it's connected to a somewhat looks like a regulator that is also kitted out with a, um, you know, an apparatus that is has a bit of software in it and actually connects to your phone. Um, so I got in contact with uh, Mike Bennett, who is, uh, I, forgive me if I'm wrong here, but he's the technical advisor for this company. I think they're based out of Denmark or Switzerland. He's um, from New Zealand. But it basically measures your tidal volumes and your inspiratory and expiratory um, outputs to actually determine what your lung function is. And it gives you real-time information on your phone, which also can be sort of um, transferred to um, a person of your choosing, yeah. being it a, pul a pulmonologist or you know someone that is uh, is in the know of what lung function should be. And you can instantaneously, it's got presets that you can actually um, train your lung capacity. So it's actually measured in sort of retrospect about what is your base value yeah. norm. So um, a lot. This is a question that I get asked: you know, How accurate is it? it? Doesn't have to be that accurate with regards to what the the, um, the baseline measurements are, but it's comparing you to yourself. Yeah. So the accuracy, you know, is actually there, and um, that, you know, from an experience perspective, is what will make a difference of a you know a safe prepared climb as opposed to not because you we can't just do even though i do strength and and weight training uh combined with calisthenics um lung function is actually very important because in that atmosphere or lack thereof um your body is basically in an anaerobic state that's and crazy to think yeah so it's all the elements are against you basically yeah. everything is trying to stop you from summiting this Precisely. incredible peak but your medical background, I'm sure, does play a role in this, that, that, that you, you, you know what I mean? Because 
I think by interpreting the data, for example, and knowing your body and how to react in certain situations, that surely is an advantage for you on this, this adventure, this quest. Yes, no, definitely. Um, <laughs> my, my limited medical knowledge. <laughs> if I have a, if I have a uh, p- person next door to me who's got a toothache, I can uh, try and help them out, <laughs> but probably not as well. Not like you have any tools. I have an ice pick, maybe that might work. Um, but yeah, and then you, we do, I mean, I do have a baseline knowledge of what it is to interpret, you know, certain situations. But, it's, you know, it's not even about that. A lot of people ask me, you know, how do you know whether or not you're capable enough of, of doing this? And therein lies what your safety capacity is, mm. because it's your own body that you need to sort of listen to and rely on. And you need to know when to sort of turn back or take a rest or descend um, as opposed to, you know, looking at your watch and saying, oh, my um, oxygen partial pressure and the saturation is perfect and I'm just going to carry on because that can be okay. But whether or not you actually have the capacity to is something that's very, I think, intrinsic to everybody, knowing when, knowing yourself and knowing your body. Yeah. Is there a a space, especially because... From a mental fortitude point of view and that sort of inner dialogue that you'll be having no doubt with yourself as you're going up Mm. is there space for like a psychologist to come in or someone as a mental coach to sort of you know because as you say you're going up eight thousand odd meters to the most dangerous place in the world everything is trying to stop you And forgive me, I'm not trying to put you off because I know you, you in, but looking from the outside, I'm going, oh my goodness, mm. are you crazy, man? You yeah. know, but there's this sense of drive I can see in you. Um, getting back to how much of a mental side is this to this? Because physiologically, I understand your body's going to go through a lot. That's why you train. That's why you have all the data. But mentally, that's probably where that difference comes between managing to summit and sometimes saying, well, I can't actually carry on here. Yeah, it's it's a very, very fine line between, you know, what your psyche is instantaneously at that moment making decisions because, I mean, you are, there's, there's no oxygen. You're not yeah. really functioning. And the, 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 the part that's scary at most is, and I'll tell you what happened when I was at about 6,800 meters so long or so out at Camp 2, um, I made this video and we had to turn back and I'm like just talking and I'm chilling and whatever it is and then I sent it to someone and I can't remember who it was that's how it's foggy it actually is and then it was a lol that was or a laughing face or something that was replied to me and I'm like why is this person laughing this is a serious moment yeah um, and then I didn't think too much about it and then on the plane back I'm going through all of this stuff and I played that video again I'd made absolutely no sense. <laughs> yeah. And that is the scary part yeah. because in that particular moment you are you think that you are functioning correctly. However, the mistakes that you make, I mean, in a normal cognizant body, if I drop this cap over and things are spilling over, I know that that's a mistake and I will deal with it in a particular frame of mind that is so deprived of oxygen if I knock this cap over and it starts going, I'll ignore it because I think that that's something that's okay and I'll just carry on going as to what I think my brain is actually you know, understanding in that situation. That is why a lot of people from the, you know, the research that I've done um, have lost their lives. Yeah. Because it's not so much so about 
um, they're not being capable, but it's making decisions that have been subpar with regards to their their safety, their safety net. Are you getting sleep at night? Because if I was in your boots um, going up Everest, I'd be thinking about everything that potentially could happen up there, good and bad. Yeah. And that would probably just overwhelm my sort of thought process all the time. Maybe share some insights as much as you want to, obviously, but I'm sure that you've got like, there has to be doubts or there has to be like, what's the driving force? I know you're climbing for a very, very good cause. Um, and that is obviously what puts the fire in your belly to do this. But at night when you go to bed and you're going, Sherbet, in a few weeks time or a month's time, wherever it may be, I could well be standing on the highest point on the earth, as close to space as humanly possible. Yeah. So, yes, there is a lack of sleep to answer that question, but there, it lies in my name, insomnia. I'm an insomniac. <laughs> <laughs> the emphasis on the yak. So that's something that's always been happening. So I guess I'm basically using this to, to my advantage because mm-hmm. on average, I probably get about three to five hours of sleep a night, and that's intermittent as well. It's not a one particular goal, but... If I gotta be waking up at four in the morning anyway, I might as well use that time to be doing something that is, um, you know, close to me and that mm. actually inspires me and gives me that drive. So I am using that to my advantage, the time that I do have by not sleeping. But then also at the same time, what actually, I think your question is more so to do with the psyche behind not sleeping and keeping me awake. And yes, there is a bit of the various risks with mm. climbing this mountain. Um, that are that are variable and it's not you can prepare as much as you want but there are things like avalanches that are you know it's 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 so common that when i mean us as south africans when we we when you hear about an avalanche you think about a movie and it's like a freak incident and it's very few and far between while i was there now in in everest in september last year it was like how we get thunderstorms. They just get avalanches. You wow. just hear stuff in the distance, a big rumble, and and you look there and you see a puff of cloud that's happening. And then you think to yourself, oh, what happens if I'm in this path and that happens? And it's just it's one of those things. And that's exactly, I mean, you can sort of predict a little bit about you know where you can sort of, send your rope into but i mean all of these are fixed lines so it's not like you have an option anyway yeah but when there's a snow dump for example last year and there was a um a blizzard that actually had to turn us back there's a lot of snow that gets dumped in a very short space of time so that whole sort of serac forgive my terminology i don't know neil if you'll be watching this he's a technical <laughs> trainer <laughs> yeah he'll um, leave comments on the youtube oh, you're yeah. like failed <laughs> excuse me yeah so that gets too heavy and it actually collapses in on itself and that causes a sack. So you can't really sort of figure out if if that's going to be okay. Yeah. And those are the risks that I'm I'm worried about. Earthquakes, for example. I mean, Nepal had its uh, the largest earthquake in 2015. There's a very good documentary on Netflix, um, a bit sensationalist the way they came about it. But uh, it's it shows you exactly what can happen when there's an earthquake on the mountain and obviously in Nepal unfortunately they had to go through that that scenario in 2015 but um, yeah there's there's so many factors that you know keep you awake but you know the the essence of the climb is more so about the adventure yeah and 
even that walk up from landing in the most dangerous airport in the world called Lakla Airport that's on the side of a mountain. And I, if you've seen any videos of that, you must <laughs> yeah, Google some stuff. Um, it's a movie. It actually is a movie. This whole thing is a movie. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's so many movies that have been made about it already. But uh, from there to, you know, just walking up to base camp, oh, it's surreal. You know, the, What are you experiencing there? Yeah. I, I mean, you said it's surreal, but are you like, I'm a step closer to which is a dream, which is something that, you know, I will cherish for the rest of my life and I'm doing it for a good cause. Yeah. Like, and, and what does it look like there at base camp? Give us an idea of what it actually looks like. I mean, for people who, like myself, I mean, Tyler keeps saying that she wants to do Everest. Her mom wants to go and climb Everest. Yeah. So she's going to be watching this too. But yeah. what does it look like? What does it feel like? It's It looks really boring. Okay. I'll be honest <laughs> with you. It looks like... It just looks like someone's old house that's like really, really dusty. Because you think, I mean, I mean, it's a glacier. It's the beginning of the glacier. That's where the base camp yeah. is. Um, and you'd think that you'd see these huge piles of ice, basically, and like snow and whatever it is. But it looks like gravel, like sand, okay. basically. And it's covering. There's a few uh, videos that are, I don't know. I don't even know if I've uploaded. No, it's on my Instagram, actually. It's... It's covered in this dust on this rock. And underneath, you can actually see that there is a big ice block there or like snow, basically. And then because I was there in, um, in summer, there was like, well, rivers that actually run yeah. through there. You can see them actually flowing down. But you're walking on this and it just sort of collapses under your feet because it's soft and it's like sludge. But then when you get really close and you're actually walking in the um, in the Kumbu Icefall, um, which is where base camp starts, or well, the base camp, bottom of the base camp, uh, well, the bottom of the Kumbu, which is where base camp is, then you can actually see what you're walking on. And it's basically, you know, like a, like a mushroom that grows out like this. And you're walking on the top of the mushroom and underneath the well, the melting ice cuts out and carves these sort of rivers that flow all the way down to the bottom of the of the um, glacier, which is about the, maybe a few kilometers long. It's not the longest in the world, but it doesn't look very appealing. Okay. Like you don't like <laughs> dust. <laughs> yeah, like then, there's no cheerleaders going, "Yeah, oh, welcome!" No. And there it is. There's a big arrow pointing to the top. No, of, of course. Thing. And there's a, even you know, there's a there's a cosmetic base camp basically that people hike to. And it's just a big rock where people, someone has spray-painted base camp. No way. I, I promise you. And then the actual base camp proper, which is, is maybe about a kilometer up after that. And that's where um, all the expedition companies set up their camps. So it doesn't look like much at all. But that's just on ground level. Yes, yeah. When you've got clear skies and you look up, uh, there's a video of uh, this on my Instagram. It's absolutely Just surreal. give us your handle. Just give us your Instagram. Oh, it's so Yak. It's Yak Lindy. It's just okay, my cool. name. Jump A K L I N D Y, um, and it's it's surreal because when you're looking at um, you know mountains, you in in a wide angle lens, you it almost looks, you know, I don't know if you put it into perspective from a size. Uh, uh, perspective it's it looks you know like almost doable it looks yeah. like oh this is it's pretty cool it looks fun and whatnot but it's, it's quite concise when you're standing in front of this thing and you can't actually see summit by the way the mountain is i mean you're in the middle of a sort of a 3d puzzle 
So when you look up, you're seeing certain faces of the mountain, but you can't see it because it does this, and then it goes and it does that. So it's actually hidden away, you know, quite well. But you got to actually turn your head from left to right in order to get the enormity. And even then, you still can't make sense of where you are. If I can tell you this, and we had a bit of bad weather last year in September, but the one morning we get up, and then the, my shopper knocked on my door. He's like, come, 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 have a look. And I went down to breakfast. And I looked in the sky. He's like, no, first look there. You look in the sky, and it's how we experience a sunrise. But there's a distinct shadow that's halfway in the sky in darkness. It, it's, it's unbelievable, actually. Yeah. Like, what is this? And you turn around, and then the sun is rising. And the mountain is casting that shadow that's blocking half of the half of the sky. Wow. And then you realize what this is the size of where you actually are. But and it dawns we, on you that this is it's actually unreal. Yeah. It it sunsets on you. <laughs> Sunrise. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um but, I, I I'm curious to know what what are you expecting? Because you have to obviously have expectations like that day one when you set off and it's all clear and it's good to go. What are you expecting along the way? Um, are you? What I mean by that is, and I suppose it's difficult because you haven't done it yet, but you've at least sort of been there to sort of see that this is what lies ahead. Mm. What are you expecting on this this journey? Because I'm sure there'll be some self-discovery that goes on too. There'll be a lot of questions asked, but what are you expecting of this, this journey, this adventure? So, yeah, so I can tell you what I from the expectations of what I was given because I've got a detailed sheet, okay, like day sheets, uh, in order to describe what my lifestyle is going to be there. Okay. So they expect you to be at a certain point by a certain day, mm. okay? Yeah. So it is quite, yeah, it's stringent it's, in it's, terms of yeah, it's the, very stringent with regards to time frames. I've got you. Yeah, um, there's certain days, there's certain times allocated to training in the Kumbu ice floor, and then there's something called rotations where you actually go up. Camp one, climatize, come back down, and well, all of that. But it's also going to be very, very weather dependent. So okay. my expectation is, and I've never sort of, I didn't, I, I mean, weather is a, there's a, there's an act of God. So you can't really, you be disappointed by something, by an act of God. But for the first time, I'm actually thinking to myself, please, please let there be good weather in order for me to get this done safely and go up and then come back down safely. Um, because the worst thing that I'd want to have have an experience is being up at Camp 3 and then we get bad weather and then you're kind of stuck there. Because when you get this bad weather, it's not like you can just go up and down. You you have to anchor and, yeah. and stay in a safe Tents zone. and all sorts. and Yeah. yeah. Um, and it's not very fun. I mean, I've used a down suit when I was in Kathmandu now, and I've used, uh, I've, I've gotten my down suit now from First Ascent here in South Africa. I want to actually do everything quite proudly South African and also proudly Nepalese. That's why I'm using a local-based company that side. But it's very uncomfortable in that down suit. Well, for me, using it in moderately fair temperatures, which is our South African and Kathmandu temperatures. But if you're stuck in a, place that's minus 27 and you've got to be there overnight and this down suit's meant to just kind of keep you alive not keep you comfortable 
it's going to be very difficult. You just blew my mind there a little bit. Keep you alive. Yeah. Not warm or comfortable. Not warm. Keep you alive. Keep you alive, yeah. That's basically. crazy. My word. Yeah. So, I mean, even the training that we're doing now, Neil, I was actually meant to be training this afternoon. Um, Sorry, Neil. Yeah. Oh, my bad. <laughs> no, no, no. It's, uh, <laughs> Neil's very accommodating. He's the chairperson of the um, South African Outdoor Academy. Okay. And he's, yeah, he's been training me from a technical perspective. So I just wanted to give him a shout out. I mean, it's not, it's not if you're doing any serious climbs or whatever it is, but even if you are, you know, quite an outdoor person, it's good to get this sort of uh, background Absolutely. in order to do local hikes and knowing what to do in a particular situation and also experiencing things for the purposes of what they are, which is adventure. So yes, thanks and sorry, Neil. <laughs> um, yeah, we're going to be training in a fridge, in a, in a um, very, very big fridge that is going to be dropping the temperature down quite low um, in order for us to try and sort of replicate conditions. This yeah. is, I mean, you're essentially uh, an athlete here because, as I've said before, we've had some of the top athletes in the country here on the show, and it's like all this incredible amount of work for one thing. For something. Y- you that, know yeah. what I'm saying? So like yeah. spending time in the fridge, it's uh, the climbing, the cardio, all these things just for this time. How long does it take, if all goes according to plan, which it will, I'm, I'm confident of that, from top, uh, from bottom to top and back down. Because uh, you said there's a rotations, there's acclimatizing. Mm. So, is it a couple of weeks or break it down for us? It it's minimal of a month. Okay. Yeah, and it can go up to two months. I see. Yeah, but it's as I said, it's all sort of weather dependent. But uh, I'm going to be there for a month, inclu- well, from the time I landed Kathmandu till till the time I get back to Kathmandu. I hope your patience, no. <laughs> I've taken well, notes. <laughs> I can't have any tooth emergencies. Yeah. Well, Dr. P is going to be around. Okay. So. <laughs> yeah. no, no, that's good. Um, so t- so up to two months. I mean, that's that's a long time. Yeah. Um, but it, but at the end of the day, I suppose it's it's something that you've now are chasing. You're doing it for the good cause. Tell us about the, the cause behind this because it can't just be that Dr. Yaklindi wants to climb Everest. There has to be something attached to that. Yeah. to give you that drive no no of course i'll give you a brief um history so last year when i did climb a lot of a lot of companies a lot of businesses or our patients uh, um actually you know suggested why don't you do something for a good cause um but you don't even know where to start there's no i mean setting up an npo and doing all of this stuff there's a lot of paperwork and a lot of legislation that goes behind it so you can't just say oh, i want to do this for that you got to do stuff especially when people give you money i yeah. mean with all the corruption that we are going through as a society the last thing i want to do is to be given money and then i don't know how to account for it one day because it's still sitting in my bag for example yeah. um so it was too much of a to- short time frame and then i thought no and it's not even you know it's something that significant with trying to go to summit so i i I didn't uh, uh acquiesced to their request but um when i got back um, one of my friends, patients, put me in touch with uh, Angela Young. So she's the founder and director of the Impilo Foundation, which is a, a foundation for the awareness of gender-based violence. And she's got her own personal story um, that 
uh, I found quite inspiring. So this person put me in touch with it. She's also got her own jewelry company. She's a jewelry designer. And um, we got in touch. She was also climbing at that stage. She was going up to base camp, Everest base camp, and also climbed Island Peak as well, together with uh, Sere Komolo, who is the first um, yeah, African maker. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and so we got in touch. And I think just from an energetic perspective, I thought we aligned and we got along very well. And I believed in her cause. I believed in what she was actually doing. And, you know, I... Um, during my comserve years and and uh, post comserve years working in the public sector in Mpumalanga, um, there was a maxillofacial department that I actually used to work in in uh, Nalspreet, and I mean we I used to see firsthand what the consequences of this particular form of violence is. I mean besides it being just traumatic from a physical perspective, the mental trauma that these um, uh, you know subjects of this form of violence actually have to go through it's it's so difficult because it's also basically it's a shame and it's a cultural norm that's perpetuated this in most circumstances and it's it's difficult to break from that cycle so i mean you see this in a, p- a patient comes in and then they ask and they tell you, you know i slipped and i fell or or i i turned something, uh, opened the car door and I got hit on that side of the face and it doesn't really make sense. And you go into your own CSI mind of trying to figure out what's actually going on. But then you help, you got to help this person from such a superficial perspective and that you just have to treat them for their injuries. But you can't do really much more yeah. than that. You can try and sort of suggest um, social worker and, and try and get them help, but it's got to be intrinsic. It's got to come sure. from, from, from that uh, you know, intention. And, you know, I believe like as a male who are predominantly the perpetrators of this form of crime, because that's exactly what it is. Um, it's not, it's not enough to say, you know, I'm not an offender and I believe in the cause. I think there needs to be education and re-education and unlearning about certain norms and, um, you, you know, um, all this inculcation of these these malaligned values that are, are creating all of this. So men need to actively stand against this. And this is why I chose to actually join Angela's course and actually, um, you know, trying to create this awareness for this this particular project. Yeah. Well, they're doing amazing work. Yeah. And so I think it's, a, the it's an incredible, foundation. yeah. Yeah. And get a and shot of that on our several cameras we've got yeah thanks tyler yeah, these pretty cameras cool. are amazing pretty cool yeah. take one of them up <laughs> <laughs> when you get back we'll talk about that but mm. so so when do you when do you leave and and what is the sort of initial sort of when you leave do you, and, and and maybe because everest has this thing where there are still bodies up there and and forgive me for leaning towards the morbid side of things but the reality is that the people go up and just don't come down and yeah. their bodies are still up there, you know. That's why I'm training in the fridge. <laughs> I get that. But is it a case of like when you leave, you're still in touch with family, friends, that sort of thing, when you go or, you know what I'm saying? Because I'm sure the family and friends will want to track your journey and see how you're doing and make sure you get back safely. Yeah. I mean, so last year, I, there's a, the Wi-Fi is pretty good up there. Okay. And thing. Take note, South African networks. Um 
it's it's good up until base camp and at base camp they've got emergency sort of communication services um so it's all geosatellite technology um past uh, a town called namche bazaar as you trek up towards uh, uh base camp um but then well from camp 2 to camp 4 the communication is relayed through base camp and then out so there's no direct communication but obviously you get gps um systems and communications where it's not really it's not like you can make a phone call but there's ping applications that you can use and preset messages that you can actually inform your family that okay. you know that you are okay and this is where you are right now or whatever it is but i think it's um well number one bit's super expensive while well, sure. you think our data is off the hook well our data price is okay right now but it's super super expensive yeah. because you're using uh satellite technology and it's not like satellites have a route that needs to go past everest no it's a very particular niche group of people that are climbing there so there's no emphasis given into communications in the region um so yeah there there is um uh while we're talking about it even power at okay. base camp okay and then past that um uh, i mean it's it's all uh, solar power but then past that it's all like a power bank type of thing where okay. you take up things and you you try and um and you know get uh, yeah. <coughs> get footage and food wise and things like that obviously that's predetermined you have like packs that uh, you know the sherpas have been doing this for many many decades Uh, and obviously nutrition and that is key because you need to replenish net put fuel in the body yeah. it's a key element to to this ascent yeah no, of course i mean base camp is a fully fledged kitchen um <clears throat> and you get all your set meals a day and there's coffee and tea and um thank goodness there's coffee yeah <laughs> and and their interpretation of pizza which is like <laughs> a it's like a paratha indian type thing with this like vegetables on it which is really good Um yeah I introduced him to dirty chai latte the last oh, time good I, man. I was good there man. yeah cuz and I couldn't understand I'm like come on guys you invented like the chai part of it and you have coffee just mix the two and absolutely they like <laughs> took the South African Indian to come in <laughs> they loved it but um yeah the at base camp there's a fully fledged kitchen and then as you go up I mean you they are make do kitchens i mean you climb with your sherpa so then you are basically carrying your food and everything up into those camps and then um you consume as as you are there's no set times yeah um, i mean on summit push day or night you got to kind of be you want to be there at the peak sunrise you actually get light which means most of the time you're starting at like 2 3 in the morning Um so there's no day and night yeah. there's no there's your sleep cycle is very erratic you get to a particular camp and you know you need to be up at us or you need to have a rest period of that amount of time you go to sleep you eat and you go to sleep immediately and you get up and then you climb again so there's no real breakfast lunch supper yeah. it's all just basically what you no have to do up there either <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah we eat would not actually yeah. <laughs> with the signal the driver uh, would <laughs> drive in the circle no you're not going to get your food but um When you eventually get to the top, what are you planning to do? I mean, is it take a nap? No. <laughs> sure, but you know, are, are people like staking flags or selfies or how are you going to document that moment? You know, because it's history. It's yeah. you one of a select few an exclusive club that have yeah. got to the top. I wouldn't call it exclusive club. There's a there's a misnomer and there's a 
you know, there's it's it's sad the way this whole the whole publicity of people who actually get to the top have, have actually developed this in the in the recent years then almost a negative connotation okay. that you know it's a it's it's an ego based sort of uh motivation but it does take a lot but then at the same time you you don't it's not about um yourself okay. it's about everyone around you it's about your sherpa it's about fellow climbers and this is something i mean i'm sure you would have seen the nims die documentary mm-hmm. for 14 peaks on on um, on netflix and you know, a lot of people pay a lot of money to go there and to get the stuff done but wherein i think lies the differentiation between egos how hard you actually say yes i want to do this and you make sure that it gets done as opposed to let's enjoy this as a group not that you are climbing with other people yeah. but yourself and your sherpa the adventure yeah. yeah um and yeah that being said when i get up there i don't think there's a, there is regulation now to not leave anything okay. uh, in that area although there's a nepalese prayer flag that um i think is up there already and you can take your stuff on the up there However, I I was thinking about it on the way here. Um, there's no like rock or stone or whatever it is. It would be nice to bring something back down. Um, and while I was there, now I went to a monastery and um, I was uh, chatting to a monk, and he says that I mean it's Everest's the name, the true name of Everest is called Sagarmata, which means the Holy Mother, and the people of that region believe that this is you know their god and it's almost a form of disrespect if you go there and litter well obviously um but also take something away okay and by take something away they mean rock or stone or, or uh, you know the land they call it it's, it's a specific uh, nepalese sanskrit word and then I was like, how can I get around this? Well, first of all, there's no rock or stone in there. What if I take a small little tube and I take, pack it in with some snow and <laughs> I bring it back? <laughs> and then you have an auction for it. And then you're like, yeah, whoever, if people can bid on this from the highest place on earth. And um, then, yeah, all the proceeds go towards uh, charity or towards a, a, a foundation. That's a great actually, idea. Yeah. However, I need to find out what the regulation is. Fair enough. If they say don't take any stone, does the water count? Like, yeah, I mean it's going to evaporate, or it's going to. Well, it's going to turn into water, the snow. At some yeah. point, so yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> I think you'll be okay. Yeah, but I, I guess what I mean to answer your question, what am I going to do up there? No, I haven't thought about it as yet. You'll have some time though to yeah. think. I'm sure. I'm going to be thinking about how to get up there. Do you think it's going to change down. you as a person? Like, I'm, I'm. I mean, there must be elements of you that will change, um, or enrich you or you know so i i don't know quite how to to ask this but i'm sure an experience like that is life-changing i guess so but i wouldn't actually know up until i do it Fair i mean enough. i can get it i mean i can understand from other people's perspective when they say yes this changed me for the better and you get these long drawn out verbose answers that doesn't make sense most of the time because you can't really like relate to them um, but I guess I'll only know once I do it. So we're going to have to get you back on yes, show, yeah, of course, when you've done two. it. But <laughs> I've got to ask you, just yeah. before we, we wrap in, in a minute or two, you think of Hillary and his crew that went up. I mean, I read that book, or there's been numerous books about it, and you go like, oh my goodness, these guys 
did it with yep. the limited technology. Yeah. I mean, it, it was phenomenal. And I'm sure you'll have a greater appreciation once you've summited and come down of what they did. Yeah. You know, like, I, I just think those pioneers back in the day just set the bar so high, if, if you know what I mean. Because I know it's still difficult, but we have got technology. We have got Sherpas. I know they yeah. had their assistance, but it's not anywhere near what you guys have. Not at all. I mean, look, the technology and things are available right now. For example, the sender, which is what actually grips onto the rope that assists you in actually climbing. They didn't have all of that. They didn't have really have crampons. They, they climbed without oxygen. And it makes you think from... How did these pioneers actually, first of all, know that's the highest place? <laughs> what if they were climbing this and there's like another mountain somewhere else that was like a meter higher and they did all this <laughs> for nothing? But if you think about everything that we do from every aspect of our lives, for example, me, you know, placing an implant. Imagine the first guy that was sitting there like, hmm, this guy is missing a tooth. Let me take a nail and I'll bang it into his jaw and I'll leave it there and then we'll load something onto it afterwards. Well, the first person that said, hmm, that, that tooth's painful. Let me take a ply and rip it out and see if, there's, if it alleviates the pain, cause a little bit more pain to alleviate yeah. pain. So it makes you think about the whole pioneering aspect of life in general all these people that did things for the very very first time yeah. and how difficult it must be for them and then you think right now where we are as as a person and as humanity it's more about revolutionizing and refining ourselves in order to be more adaptable to you know what we are subjected to so therein i think lies our minds more than matter and if we can actually do better and and achieve better by tweaking the systems that we already have, not just sending a person, I guess, to Mars or wherever else it is, but changing ourselves. And maybe our changing ourselves doesn't, it doesn't really mean the tangible things like working out or whatever it is, but just being better humans and just treating each other better. We might actually get this place to be better for our future generations. Yeah, as someone who's lived in various countries throughout his, his career, Th that's exactly it and and i've always said south africa is a beautiful yet broken country yes yeah. we need inspirational people yeah. yeah we need people that inspire and you're one of those people and you're doing it for a wonderful cause thank you very much for your time dr yak and uh where can people follow your journey is there is there a website or is it purely on your instagram what where's the best place to track you and see where you are i think it probably will be instagram um at this particular moment we are setting up a few other avenues maybe to try but it's i mean the easiest would actually be instagram this is the the sponsorship jacket so there was meant to be a qr tag here okay which it was very funny when they actually made it and they did a test on another piece of material and they took a photo of the qr tag it went to somewhere completely different <laughs> so <laughs> we didn't want to get it printed sure. on the jacket but yeah you can follow me at um yak lindy that's y-a-k-l-i-n-d-y and yeah i'll be posting as often as i can be and Dwayne, our cinematographer there behind the camera will be behind it you can follow him as well Dwayne wiggle um, yeah, and he'll be the guy behind the the, the team that's going How's to his be training going? 
<laughs> he's well. He's got a follow me. <laughs> Last week Friday we had uh, training and for a white guy to complain that it was hot, <laughs> and me and this all of this gear, you can imagine things went down the cart. Well, Doctor yeah. Yak, we wish you all the best. Uh, oh, God thanks. bless, safe travels, and uh, yeah, we can't wait to hear the story when you get back. Awesome. Thank you very Good much. Good to be here. Thanks. Yes.